we say, uh, truthfully, uh, doing announcements is about the toughest thing to have to get up and do because you're going from one thing to another, trying to remember it all, trying to capture everything that everybody's asking you uh, to say, and I appreciate Chris being bold to jump up here and to do that. So um, I've got one announcement, and then we'll, we'll do the message. Um, pastor Sabi and Rebecca, our missions pastors, uh, on a quarterly basis want to bring one of our missionaries in and have an opportunity for the church to get to know them, to find out a little bit about their ministry. Um, and there's just not a, a formal way for us to do it except to set aside time to make it happen. So uh, on the 6th of March, uh, 6 p.m. in our chapel, which is the northeast side of the building, um, we're going to have Pastor Elihu here. So, uh, you might remember him if you've been here. He ministers in North Africa, Sudan, North Sudan, Egypt. Uh, he ministers in places where, um, where people are martyred for their faith. And I just found this out. His mother and his sister were both martyred in the last two years for their faith. Uh, this is a man who um, 900 pastors he's raised up in the area that he ministers in. And those people go in and literally lay their lives on the line um, to teach the gospel and to bring Jesus to places that are, are so opposed. Uh, you know, the devil has such a grip on parts of the world trying to keep the name of Jesus out of it. And so um, Pastor Elihu and his wife have a very powerful ministry uh, that does that. You know, um, we meet some of these people and they're so meek and they're so mild. And you think to yourself, you know, how does this guy do this? I, I'm going to, when we get to heaven, there are going to be giants that we see in the faith. People that have done things that we are going to be amazed at. And this is a couple. So uh, March 6, 6 o'clock in the chapel. If you'd like to come um, support here where, you know, missions is a big part of what we do. A big part of our budget goes to it. We take different offerings for it. If you want to see what that is doing, um, that it's not just, it's not just roped. It's not just some automatic thing, but the life of God is in it. And uh, Pastor Ryan is a part of that now, um, supporting uh, Sabi and, and Rebecca in ministry. And so just, I, I don't know how to say it except to say it. Come be a part of this. Join in. I think any of the encouragement is so necessary and it means so much. Um, to these people. So any more information that you'd like, you can find it online or talk to any of us afterwards. Okay, we're in a series called Matters of the Heart. It's actually the last message of this series. And then next week, believe it or not, we start Easter. E-A-S-T-E-R, heard of it? <laughs> I, how about this? I can't believe how quick the year is going. Already, And I know it's cliche to say that time flies, but it does seem like it is being compressed right now. It just seems like it moves so fast, uh, and here we are about to go into Easter. But uh, this weekend, we'll finish up message on uh, matters of the heart. I'm going to use King David um, as our example today and scriptures around his life. I want to talk about David's heart, um, and I want to pre-warn you right now. The message is not... If, if you're looking for a 20-minute homily and then a quick, hey, bless you and have a great week, that's not this message. This message is where is your heart at? What's going on inside of you right now? And um, so I said this last night, and let me, let me begin. I ended with it, but I'm going to begin with it. 
People call me pastor, but for most of them, it's nothing more than a title. Let me explain to you when I'm your pastor. When you give me the right to speak into your life. And is there anybody speaking into your life? Because we live in a time and a day where people are just like, I do what I want, when I want, how I want, and I really don't want you doing that. So it's Pastor John, but it's only in title. It's not in deed. And I'm not a pastor to you until your heart is open to me and you let me speak into your life. Do you know that my job, according to the Bible, is to care for your soul? That's my job. And I want to do a good job of that today. So please open your heart to me. Listen to what the Holy Spirit has to say. I think there's something here that you will find um, worthy of your time and something that might be life-changing uh, for you. going to start at 1 Samuel uh, chapter 16, 1 through 13. Let me uh, set this up real quickly. Um, when we pick up the story, it's the first time that we read about King David. David is approximately 17 years old. The Bible gives us a few clues uh, about his age. He's anointed to be king at 17. He doesn't become king until he's 30. So those years right there, what are those years like for David? They're very difficult years. Uh, he may be anointed king, but there's still a king in Israel named Saul. And Saul is not happy that someone else has been anointed king. So Saul has it in for David. And it's a, it's a battle that goes back and forth. And his life revolves around this. But we pick up when he's anointed as king to begin David's story and talking about his heart. So 1 Samuel 16, and you can follow along. Now the Lord said to Samuel, Samuel's the great prophet in Israel at this time. You have mourned long enough for Saul. Remember, Saul's the king. Saul's problem was that his flesh, his flesh controlled his life. And Saul would not do what God wanted him to do. Every instruction that God would give to Saul, he would, he would carry out a lot of it, but he'd still do it his way, and he wouldn't fully carry out the things that God wanted him to do. And in fact, David is called a man after God's own heart. And do you know why? In the book of Acts, it says because David did everything that God told him to do. And that's why. So Saul was rejected as king because he was disobedient to the Lord. And so we pick the story up. The Lord said to Samuel, you've mourned long enough for Saul. I have rejected him as king of Israel. So fill your flask with olive oil. Go to Bethlehem. Find a man named Jesse who lives there, for I have selected one of his sons to be my king. But Samuel asked, how can I do that? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. Legitimate question. Take a heifer with you, the Lord replied, and say that you have come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you which of his sons to anoint for me. So Samuel did as the Lord instructed. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town came trembling to meet him. What's wrong? They asked. Why don't they ask, what's right that you're here visiting us today? Um, our son Daniel is visiting us right now. He's actually helping out um, with one of our guys that's on vacation and we needed someone to fill in. So Daniel's here doing that. And I texted him, our, our, the bedroom he's sleeping in is no more than 15 feet away from ours. But instead of getting up and going to the bedroom, I texted him um, from my room. Um, yeah, how modern and lazy is that at the same time? I said, hey, Let's, uh, there's a cherry cricket that's open in Littleton now. Let's go get one of their hamburgers. And he puts great exclamation point, 
is everything okay? <laughs> what is that about? <laughs> when an authority comes that there's, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure. So their question to him is, do you come in peace? Yes, Samuel replied, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Purify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then Samuel performed the, prefer, the purification rite for Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice too. When they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab. Eliab is the oldest, firstborn. Uh, there's another uh, part of scripture that says that he was uh, strong, well-built, handsome. And um, I, I think that this problem of how we pick leaders is not something that we deal with only in 2024. I think this is what's been going on since time and eternity. When we go to pick a leader, we seldom look at what's going on inside. We look at the outside. We look for who's the prettiest, who's the handsomest, who's the best well-built. Do you know the reason they picked Saul as their king was because he was the tallest? Do you know that's a lousy reason to pick? You get it? Yeah. Just a little slide. <laughs> so Eliab walks in front of Samuel, and this is Samuel's thought. Surely this is the Lord's anointed, and he's only based on the fact that he is the firstborn, he's strong, and he's handsome. Has no clue about his character. Has no clue about what's going on inside of his heart going to anoint him to be king because of how he looks and tell me that is not a problem we deal with today. It's how somebody positions themselves, presents themselves. Um, it used to be the bling, but now it's the drip. If you don't know what that is, you're too old. I am not. But it's more superficial. It's shiny. It's, it's what you can see that we base it on and how much trouble do we get in when we pick leaders only based on what they look like or what they say and not who they really are on the inside? And that's not a statement about any candidate. It's a statement about all over the world. Leaders are picked because of how they look and not because of who they really are. And then the problem is once they're in office, who they really are is how they really lead. So the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way that you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse told his son Abinadab II to step forward and walk in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, this isn't the one the Lord has chosen, because this time it wasn't based on what he saw, but God didn't say anything. So he said, this can't be the one. So this goes on. Next, Jesse summoned Shemiah. But Samuel said, neither is this the one the Lord has chosen. And in the same way, all seven of Jesse's sons were presented to Samuel. If you know anything about this man and his family, it says all seven of his sons, but he actually has eight sons. The interesting, David's problem, his biggest one probably wasn't Goliath. It was probably a father that didn't see him as worthy to even be presented. 
What a father wound that is, huh? In the same way, all seven of Jesse's sons were presented to Samuel. Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. Then Samuel asked, are these all the sons you have? I mean, can you hear? Can you imagine? Can you put yourself there? Listen how he answers this. Uh, Yeah, there is still the youngest. But that can't possibly. He's the runt. He's obviously not very tall. But he's out in the fields watching the sheep and goats. Send for him at once, Samuel said. We will not sit down to eat until he arrives. So Jesse sent for him. He was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes. And the Lord said, this is the one. Anoint him. So as David stood there amongst his brothers, probably for the first time in his life, his brothers had to take a back seat to him. Can you imagine? For the first time in his life, his brothers have to stand there and think to themselves, wow, look what's happening to him, instead of him standing there and going, look at what's happening for them. And what a thing is happening for him. Samuel took the flask of olive oil that he had brought, anointed David with the oil, and the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. Then Samuel returned to Ramah. So he's anointed as king at 17, but he doesn't become king until he's 30. And those 13 years are difficult years. This anointing, by the way, is interesting because when we anoint today, like if you come up for prayer and we anoint you with oil, we are very good not to get it all over you. Put a little bit on our finger and a little bit on your head or maybe your hands or maybe where it's hurting. But the way that David was anointed, Samuel took the flask and dumped it upside down on his head. And it dripped down and his brothers watched it. And there's a scripture that confirms this, how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity, harmony, and love It's like the oil of anointing that runs down the beard and drips onto the clothes. I mean, the Holy Spirit smears us. He doesn't just dab us. And that's a good thing. So if you're taking the online notes and you want to fill in the blanks, there's three of them. The first one is David's integrity of heart. So let me tell you what David did. He's anointed as king, but he can't become the king. And Saul is still in the position of king, and he becomes very jealous of David. But Saul has a real problem. The Bible says that an evil spirit would land on Saul, and it was so nasty that it depressed him. Uh, Some people say that it was suicidal. Uh, It was in such a bad way that he couldn't sleep, he couldn't eat. No one wanted to be around him. That's a bad thing when you're the king. And the only relief he could get was that this kid, David, was also a musician. And he had an anointing on him. And when he would play, the anointing would fall and this evil spirit would have to leave Saul. And he could sleep and he could rest and he would feel normal. So here's this guy that he's jealous of and yet this is the guy that can help him. So he moves him into the palace. And whenever Saul would be underneath the control of the spirit, David would play and this thing would lift and Saul would be so grateful and then he would become jealous. And one time the Bible tells us that right after that, he picks up a spear and he throws it at David. Can you imagine being applauded and then a spear thrown right at you? 
You know what David became good at? Dodging spears. Saul became so angry with him that he began to pursue him. David had to leave the palace. And some of those 13 years, David lived in ditches. One time he had to act like he was crazy. He lived in caves. The joke when we go to Israel, Jewish people who have been through so much will say, they're called the chosen people. So the inside joke in Israel, when we go there, they will say like, if this is what it means to be chosen, how do we get unchosen? Can you imagine David, if this is what it means to be anointed the king? I don't want to be the king. But he lives in this position for all of these years. And as Saul is pursuing him, David is staying just one step ahead of him. And so we pick up a story on David's integrity right in the middle of this time. And this also comes from Samuel. It's 1 Samuel 24. After Saul returned from fighting the Philistines, he was told that David had gone into the wilderness of En Gedi. For those that have been to Israel with us, we go to En Gedi. We go right to that place. We go up to the caves. They're still there. You can walk in there. It's actually, uh, now it's, a, it's a, a, a preserve where they have all of these, um, these, these goats. And I can't remember the name of the goats. What are they called, Todd? Ibex. 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 Thank you. Brilliant. Brilliant daughter of mine. Yeah. Um, Ibex and Irex. They're both of them. And they have these skinny little trees. Like a, like a three or four year old sapling. And these goats climb straight up these trees and stand in the top of these trees on branches that you would say, no way in the world. They could, how do those branches even, how does a goat climb a tree? I, it is one of the, you go to Israel with me just to see the goats in the trees. It is an amazing, amazing thing. So Saul returned from fighting the Philistines. He was told that David had gone into the wilderness of Engedi. So Saul chose 3,000 elite troops. These are the warriors of Israel. These are men trained in battle. And he picks 3,000 people to go after David. Imagine. They went to search for David and his men near the rocks of the wild goats. At the place where the road passes some sheepfolds, Saul went into a cave to relieve himself. The Bible if nothing else, is direct. But as it happened, David and his men were hiding further back in the cave. Now's your opportunity, David's men whispered to him. Today the Lord is telling you, I will certainly put your enemy into your power to do with as you wish. So David crept forward and cut off a piece of the hem of Saul's robe. He could have cut his throat, but instead he cut his robe. And then look at David's heart. But then David's conscience. (laughs) When's the last time you heard anything about conscience? When's the last time it was even talked about? That to protect your conscience is such an important thing. Like people violate that conscience over and over again. And all that happens is what used to be something you would stay away from. Now you embrace it because you've seared your conscience. To have a conscience is everything. Do you know what a good leader needs? A tender conscience. So David's conscience began bothering him because he had cut Saul's robe. 
And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this to my Lord, the king. Look at how David talks about Saul. I shouldn't attack the Lord's anointed one, for the Lord himself has chosen him. So David restrained his men and did not let them kill Saul. After Saul had left the cave and gone his way, David came out and shouted after him, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked around, David bowed low before him. Then he shouted to Saul, why do you listen to the people who say I am trying to harm you? This very day you can see with your own eyes it isn't true. For the Lord placed you at my mercy back there in the cave. Some of my men even told me to kill you, but I spared you. For I said I will never harm the king. He's the Lord's anointed one. Look, my father, at what I have in my hand. It is a piece of the hem of your robe. I cut it off, but I didn't kill you. This proves that I am not trying to harm you and that I have not sinned against you. And even though you have been hunting for me to kill me, may the Lord judge between us. Perhaps the Lord will punish you for what you are trying to do to me, but I will never harm you. As the old proverb says, from evil people come evil deeds, so you can be sure I will never harm you. Who is the king of Israel trying to catch anyway? Should he spend his time chasing one who is as worthless as a dead dog or a single flea? May the Lord therefore judge which of us is right and punish the guilty one. He is my advocate and he will rescue me from your power. David's integrity is a powerful thing. I think there was a time when people would look at leadership and one of the things we desired was to find integrity, to find a conscience, to find a person who actually did what they said. Now, now, can I talk to you about fearing God real quick? What it means to do right before him? I told the church last night, um, this is my 26th year. We planted the church 26 years ago. Um, it's been my honor to pastor that long. I know you look at me and you think, man, there's no way he could be that old. I had to have a procedure, I had to have a scope uh, looked into my stomach and the nurses came in and I could hear them uh, outside and um, she said, uh, he's 60. She opens the curtain, she goes, no way is he 60. <laughs> you know what a good feeling it is to hear <laughs> something like that. <laughs> so it's been my honor to pastor this church, to lead this church, to watch God do amazing things through the years. I mean, it's been, it's been incredible. And because I've been here so long, and because there's not scandal, and I've earned the trust. Is it fair to say that? Yeah. I've earned the trust. It's just, there's peace here. Yeah. But let me tell you the truth. Your protection in this church is not that Pastor John has been here for a long time. It's not that we've set up systems that keep the money out of my hands or different things like that, although we do those things. Your protection in this church, listen to me, is that I fear the Lord. Listen, I know, I know at some point, and I'm saying it for me, but it's true for you too. At some point in history, I will have to stand before the Lord and answer for what I did as pastor in this church, for how the money was spent, 
for how I talked to people, for decisions that were made. Do you know that the Bible says pastors go through the judgment twice, once for themselves and then for the people of God that were in their care? If you really believe in God, if you really love the Lord and you really believe that he is the Lord of your life, then you have to come to the reality that at some point you will give an answer for what you've done with your life. Now, I'm not talking whether I go to heaven or not. The only way I go to heaven is based on what Jesus did, not what I do. But I will answer and be rewarded for what I do with you here and now. And your protection is not that Pastor John is a good guy. Never trust that alone. I am a good guy. But that's not your protection. Your protection is that I fear the Lord. And I believe that I'll answer for what I do. And if that's true for me, then it's true for you too. And so I want to talk to you for a moment. Where's your heart at in this thing? Do you believe you'll answer to the Lord for your life? Do you believe the decisions you're making, the way you treat people, the way you treat resource? I'm not trying to talk down or make you afraid, but I'm being straight honest with you. We'll give answer for what we've done with our lives. I think to fear the Lord is not something that makes us afraid to make a decision or paralyzes us or freezes. I think it's something that actually makes it easy to know how to live your life. If I know I'm going to answer to God, then it makes my decision real easy. I can't do what my flesh wants to do. I need to do what God tells me to do. I think the idea of integrity, it's such a lost thing today. And integrity is not something that we do because we're trying to show off. In fact, you want to know what integrity is? Integrity is who you are when nobody's watching. That's who you really are. Integrity is not right now while you're watching me. This is what I do with the gift that God's giving me. Integrity is when you're all away and I'm home and I make decisions then. That's what integrity is. Does that make sense? To have a conscience that is easily led by the Lord so that you don't want to do. what your flesh wants to do. I tried to give a definition of this last night. The Bible says that Moses was the meekest man who ever lived. When we think of the word meekness, it usually is like a milk toast, a wimp, uh, someone who's pale. It's not, not strong. But let me give you a true definition of meekness. Meekness is power under control. You could destroy, but you don't. David was meek. He could have cut his throat, but he held back because he respected God more than he worried about what Saul was going to do to him. David was in the school of humiliation. I wrote this in my notes. Humiliation is preparation for acceleration. If you're in the school of humility right now, it is not because God is mad at you. So many people think 
that when they're being humbled, they've done something wrong. The truth of the matter is, God trusts you, he has a future for you, and in order for you to be able to handle it, you have to be a humble person. Do you know the difference between David and Saul? David had humility and Saul didn't. David's flesh was crucified and Saul's wasn't. David was a man after God's own heart because he'd do what God said and Saul would do what he wanted to do. Let me give you the second fill in the blank. David's bold heart. This is not a story that's often talked about in church because we don't know how to handle it. We don't know where it fits with us today. But David's king at this time. Saul's dead, gone. David's become king. He has unified Israel. Israel's in its glory days right now. It is powerful. God is moving. Israel is known all over the known world at that time. And David is king. And David wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant, which if you don't know history and don't know the Bible, the Ark the ark comes from the Old Testament, and inside the Ark of the Covenant were the Ten Commandments, uh, Aaron's rod that budded. And so the ark represented the presence of God, the glory of God, the power of God, and it's not in Jerusalem where it belongs. And David decides the ark needs to come to Jerusalem, so he sets out to go get the ark but he doesn't read the scripture to figure out how to treat the presence of God. So he goes casually and a man ends up dying because he mishandles the presence of God. David doesn't know how to handle it. So he goes back, searches the scriptures. And now they go to get the ark. Now he brings thousands of men with him. They take a few steps. They make a sacrifice. They are having a party, a celebration. So we pick up the story. This is King David's bold heart. David danced before the Lord with all his might. When's the last time you did that? Wearing a priestly garment. Um, the priestly garment, I heard a guy teach one time, uh, he called it underwear. That is, man, uh, um, undergarment is a better word. It was a garment worn underneath the robes of the priest. They put it on as an act of worship. It represented the division between their duty and their flesh. And so David takes off the robes as king because he's not acting as king right now. He's celebrating the real king. So he has on the linen ephod and David is so excited that the presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant is coming into Jerusalem that he begins to dance with all of his might before the Lord. You'll only see this at Jubilee. <laughs> you know the problem with that? That is not with all my might. <laughs> so David danced before the Lord with all his might, wearing a priestly garment. David and all the people of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts of joy and the blowing of the shofar, the ram's horn. And as the ark of the Lord entered the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, David's wife, looked down from her window and was so pleased. 
that her husband was excited about God. <laughs> She's just like her dad. When she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she was filled with what? I taught not too long ago, last year, in a marriage series. Let me tell you, the final nail in the coffin of a relationship is contempt. If a man or a woman comes to the point of contempt, where what the other person does is embarrassing to them, what the other person does infuriates them all the time, what the other person does just causes them to, I can't stand it. You've hit not a warning light, you've hit a red light. Fix it now because it will be over with before you know it. Listen to what I'm saying to you. Contempt is a bad thing. So she was filled with contempt for him. They brought the ark of the Lord, set it in its place inside the special tent David had prepared for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and peace offerings to the Lord. He was so excited. He had done what God told him to do. The ark of the covenant is now back in Jerusalem. People are celebrating. Everyone's happy except his wife. When he had finished his sacrifices, David blessed the people in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies. Then he gave to every Israelite man and woman, every one of them, a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, a cake of raisins. Then all the people returned to their homes. They're happy. They're celebrating. When David returned to his home to bless his own family, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him. And she said in disgust, how can I make this sound? How distinguished the king of Israel looked today, shamelessly exposing himself to the servant girls like any vulgar person might do. She's talking to the king. And she's insulting him because he loves the Lord. David retorted to Michael, I was dancing before the Lord who chose me above your father and all his family. Guess who that is? He appointed me as the leader of Israel the people of the Lord, so I celebrate before the Lord. Yes, and I am willing to look even more foolish than this, even to be humiliated in my own eyes. But those servant girls you mentioned will indeed think I'm distinguished. So Michael, the daughter of Saul, remained childless throughout her entire life. I think it's prophetic. Listen to me. I think when you mock the things of God, you end up spiritually barren. I think you find yourself in a place where you are now contrary to it because it doesn't fit your paradigm. It doesn't fit the way you were raised, how you grew up, how you saw someone else do it. And because it doesn't fit your paradigm, we're so easy to reject it, to say no to it. Can I talk to you? Chris tried to say it. Worship, worship here. It's not four songs in 30 minutes, finish up, be done, put a bow on it, and let everybody go on to the next part of it. Worship is not to make you happy, it's to make God happy. Worship is trying to find a way to make him feel like you belong here in this church. Many churches today script it all for the people and leave God completely out of it. And we're trying to create a place where God feels like. And yes, he does feel. They want me there. They make time for me there. They're not worried about what is next on the agenda. How about 
going into the old hymn, nothing but the blood of Jesus. You don't script those things. He just pulls it from his heart. And suddenly, you know, I leaned over to Chris last night, all four of those songs. I said, have we ever sung these songs before? She said, John, we sing these all the time. Like, where am I? I tell you exactly where I am. I'm not looking at the word so much as I'm trying in my heart to worship the Lord. And I'm telling him how beautiful he is and how wonderful he is and how awesome and how much I love him and how I desire his presence in my life and how my heart belongs to him and how he can do anything that he wants with me. And this church also, as long as I am helping to make the decisions, we want to pursue the Lord. And I know many say, I didn't grow up that way, Pastor. It seems so long. And they sing the bridge over and over and over. I've got it memorized. I get it. And did you experience Jesus? And did the Holy Spirit anoint you? And did the only name under heaven by which a person can be saved, that name is Jesus. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Did that name get elevated while we were worshiping? Or did you find yourself just, oh, I can't wait for this to get over. Because if that's happening, you're being ripped off. And the truth of the matter is you're not experiencing what this is supposed to be about. Man, I want you to feel at home here and I want you to be comfortable here, but I want you to worship the Lord in this place. Amen. Driving here this morning, passing churches, and I'm praying, I'm asking God, I want you to pour out at Jubilee, but if you only poured out there, what a waste it would be. Pour out, God, pour out in these Baptist churches. Amen. Surprise them this morning. <laughs> in a good way. Remind them that you're doing incredible things in the earth today. Remind them that our tomorrow is not a disaster. Heaven and earth may pass away, but his word will never pass away, man. So what are you trying to say, pastor? We're living in a time and a moment, and our church is on a precipice where I think that God is showing up more, and it's pressing forward, and I don't, I want you to want it. I know you may say, I, I just, I don't, what does that mean? I don't know. I grew up a Catholic kid. Dude, I went to the church where if you clapped, it killed old women. <laughs> They'd carry them out on a stretcher. Priest would spin, dust, psh. It was over in 45 minutes. <laughs> I know you think, oh, why can't he just do a 20-minute homily? I just can't. Just, I can't. I've got to reach your heart. And I don't want you to be in a place where you despise something that is so precious to the Lord that if the expression is beyond your understanding of how it was when you grew up or where you're at right now, that at least your heart, look, it is 
It's religion to tell somebody you have to worship this way. That's legalism. I don't believe people should be told you have to worship this way. But I don't believe we should keep people from worshiping in a joyful and a full way. If King David were to dance with all of his might, could you accept it here at Jubilee? Or would we despise it? Pastor, what are you trying to do? Nothing. What I said about being a Catholic kid, it's, it's not who I am either. Like, this, this, is, this is it for me. That's it. And it doesn't get any better than that right there. I'm not trying to push an agenda or say it needs to be this way. In fact, It's the heart of it that I'm going after. Do you hear what I'm saying? It's the heart of worship. It's the heart for God. I think that that boldness is something that heaven is attracted to. And I want Jubilee to be a place where people can be bold in their heart for the Lord. Where we can believe. (laughs) I had a guy call me couple of weeks ago. I believe that God is healing people today. I believe that Jesus died by his stripes. We are healed. Yes, spiritually, but also physically. I believe that. I believe the Bible says, pray for the sick. If there's anyone sick amongst you, let them come to the elders of the church. Let the elders of the church anoint them with oil, pray the prayer of faith, and the sick will recover. New Testament. I believe that. And because we're trying to practice that, a guy calls me and says, I don't believe those things are going on today. And you are being apostate. You're leaving the faith to try to teach people that healing is happening today. Ah, uh, uh. It hurt me that someone would think I'm apostate, but I'll be hurt and humiliated because I will go for the things of God. And I want our church to go for the things of God. Thank you, but it's not for him. Let me give you the third one, the final one. Let me talk about David's heart after God. Now, this is a weird one because we've looked at David as a teenager. We've looked at David in the middle of his life when he's the king and everything's going well. But then the Bible tells a story about David that's conflicting because the man who's anointed king, who God says, this is a man with a heart after me, that same man commits a horrible sin that the Bible records. Then my question to you is, if the Bible's trying to pull the wool over your eyes or sell you something, you realize you only tell the good parts when you're trying to fool people, right? If you tell the gray hairs and the wrinkles and you show it without makeup, you're not trying to fool anybody. So here's the story of David with a heart after God. 2 Samuel 11, look at the position David finds himself in at some point in his life. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent 
the general Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. The first sentence, in the spring of the year when kings normally go out to war, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Look at me real quickly. It's usually when we're not where we're supposed to be. Something has happened to his heart. His passion, his desire, where he's supposed to be, he's not doing it anymore. And this is a guy who loves God. This is a guy who has a heart after God. This is the king. And somehow this guy's life is in conflict with his beliefs. I think the reason this story is in the Bible is because everybody in this room can relate to the fact that sometimes you can have an action that's in conflict with a belief. Seven of us. <laughs> David stayed behind in Jerusalem late one afternoon. After his midday rest, David got out of bed, was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was. He was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. What is left out of this Uriah is one of his very best friends. This is a kid that he grew up with. This was one of his mighty men that were in the cave with him when Saul came in. This is a guy who's ascended as David's ascended. This is a guy that David is good friends with. So this is not someone that David's doing something to that he doesn't know anything about. This is a guy that's his best. Does it give you a picture of where his heart is? She's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. And when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites after her menstrual period. Then she returned home later when Bathsheba discovered that she was, say the word. She sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. Uh-oh. What do you do? So the man, after God's own heart, Decides to cover it up. And I'll sum it up for you quickly. He brings Uriah home from the battle, thinking that he'll come home and he'll sleep with his wife, and then it'll look like he impregnated her, and no one will know, but God always knows. And you would think the guy who was picked because of what's in his heart and not what's on the outside would always remember that God knows what's going on in the heart. But he's forgotten. Because he's away from where he's supposed to be. Look at me. I'll be done with this quickly. Every man and woman in this room who loves the Lord can find themselves in a place where they're not supposed to be spiritually. You can be hard-hearted. You can be attracted. You can swear at one point you'll never do something and then find yourself tempted by it and sometimes giving in to the temptation. And then our heart is to cover it up. To deny that God knows. To just ignore it and try to keep going. And I'm going to tell you the truth. God loves you so much, he won't let you keep going. And it's not to punish you. It's to save you. So he brings Uriah home. Uriah is an honorable man. He decides this. If my men can't come home and sleep with their wives, then I'm not going to sleep with my wife. So he sleeps in the doorway of his house. And that frustrates David. So David comes up with the next plan. He pulls the other generals and he said, I want you to put my best friend 
in the worst part of the battle because he knew the chances would be good that Uriah would be killed. And guess what? Uriah was killed. And so David, in front of the people, takes his best friend's wife, acting like I'm being honorable to take the widow into my house and to take care of her. But God knows the heart. And so God raises up a little prophet named Nathan. We only read about him a couple of times. Look at the courage of this guy. So the Lord sent Nathan, the prophet, to tell David a story. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich, one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb he had bought. He raised that little lamb and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate, drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a little daughter. One day, a guest arrived at the home of the rich man, but instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his, his guests. David was furious, just incensed. And then he says this out loud. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. And he must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole and for having no pity. And then Nathan with the courage of God, says to the king, you're that guy. And the God of Israel says, I anointed you king of Israel and saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and you have stolen his wife. <laughs> From this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. And this is what the Lord says. Because of what you have done, I will cause your household to rebel against you. I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes and he will go to bed with them in public view. You did it secretly, but I will make this happen to you publicly. Then David grabbed a sword and chopped the man to pieces. What did he do? David confessed immediately to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, yep, but you made the right decision. The Lord forgives you and you won't die for this sin. The reason I put David as a man after God's own heart at this point in the story is because if you find yourself in a place where you shouldn't be, if you're doing something and you think you've covered it up, don't turn from me right now. Do I have the right to speak into your life? I'm caring for your soul. This might be one of the most important things you ever hear me say to you. You're not getting away with anything. What's going on outside, I could care less about. It's what's going on inside that matters more than anything. Where is your heart at with God right now? We live in a day where evil seems to have raised its head and God's people seem to fall right in line with it. Things that at one time we would have said, no way. Will I allow that? Will I participate in that? 
Well, I agree with that. Now we go along with it and we think, I just cover it up and it's all going to be okay. Look at the world and look at the church. My message is not hard and harsh and I'm not ugly and mean. I'm saying it because I love you and I say it to me first. You can find yourself in a place where your whole life you've had a belief, but suddenly there's a conflict. Don't cover the conflict. Confess your sin and cry out to God. Ask for his mercy. Ask him to help you. Ask him to forgive you. Ask him to restore you. Humility, look at me, is not a weakness. It's a strength. And if you find yourself in the school of humility right now, it's so that at some point when God needs it from you, you can give humility instead of like Saul and it costs you your life. I know they say that in our part of the city, there's too much wealth to preach a message like that, pastor. So I'm an anomaly. An accident. I wasn't tall enough. I wasn't eloquent enough. None of this should have happened. And yet, here we are. And here you are. And I'm not being ugly and mean. I'm calling you to a place. If you need to repent today, repent. Look at me. Repent. It's not an ugly thing. It's a wonderful thing. Get your heart back in the place where it's tender and your conscience can hear the voice of the Lord and you're able to sleep without worrying what's going to be found out. I'm telling you the truth right now. And the close is communion. And I can't think of a better way for us to put our hearts right before the Lord. There is a strange scripture where Paul teaches some people have died early because they've taken communion in an unworthy manner. That's weird. What does that mean exactly? So maybe the question is not what's unworthy. Maybe the question is what's worthy. What's worthy is to have your heart in a pure place for God. When you come up, what God wants is all of your heart. And I'm going to go home and feel like I was hard and mean. I'm not. Let me speak into your life. When you say, Pastor John, let it be because you really let me be your pastor. I can't force that or take that. All I can do is ask you to let me. Let me be your pastor. Let me care for your soul right now. If you find yourself in any of those places where like your heart's just not it's not where it should be. Do something about it today. Father, <clears throat> communion people, would you come and get ready? Father, as we prepare our hearts for you, Lord, I know I've meandered trying to catch as many people as possible with a net so the Holy Spirit could speak. Lord, I want to take advantage right now 
that as many different people as are here is as many different ways as you want to pull on people's hearts. Lord, for some of us, God, our pride is in the way. Humility is an ugly word. We trust in ourselves. We trust in our wealth. We trust in our education. We trust in everything but you. And today I would call you from that place of pride to a place of humility and let the Lord be the Lord of your life. And I'm not asking for a response on this part. But if you're a person with a heart after God and yet you find yourself in a place in your life where you're not where you're supposed to be, There's a conflict with your beliefs. Then I call you today before the Lord. Confess it to Him. Forsake it. Ask the Lord for His mercy. And if your conscience is hard, And if what I'm saying right now bothers you, then I ask you today, open your heart. Ask the Holy Spirit to soften it. And as we come to take communion, come with a heart that's open and willing, not just doing something because you've done it a thousand times before. Let it be brand new, real, true, and happening in you right in this moment. May the Lord pour out his mercy upon all of us today. God help us. You can go to communion by yourself, go as a family, go with friends. You can linger and wait and ask the Lord to prepare your heart. The only thing that I ask you is just don't don't do it like you've always done it. Let the Lord renew in you today his tender mercies, his compassion, his joy, his life.